Thank you for listening to our Let's Talk Future podcast series. In this episode, our guest is Francois Brisebois, Managing Director and Senior Biotechnology Research Analyst at Oppenheimer. And our host is Joan Corey, Chief Marketing Officer. This episode was recorded on May 18, 2021. Please subscribe to our channel to instantly access previous episodes. Subscribing also means that you won't miss out on new episodes with our thought leaders who are bringing you timely and relevant insights about the markets, investing, business, new technology, and life in general. Welcome to Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. In this series, we are focused on bringing you up-to-date information on trends and forces shaping your lives and markets. I'm your host, Joan Corey, Chief Marketing Officer of Oppenheimer. Let's talk healthcare. National healthcare expenditures reach $3.8 trillion, or about $11,000 per person in 2019, and that's up 4.6% from the prior year. That's approximately 17.7% of U.S. GDP. And going forward, the challenge is how to slow the rising cost of healthcare at the same time as improving the quality of healthcare to both the U.S. population and ultimately to all citizens of the world. One of my colleagues who was in the pharmaceutical business back in the 90s recounted experiencing a constant rumble of the potential of computational techniques to change the way healthcare was delivered. But that reality remained elusive. The advent of more powerful computers and programming sophistication has made many of the AI and machine learning technologies ready for prime time in the pharmaceutical industry and healthcare business today. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Francois Brisebois, or Frank, as we Americans like to call him, who is a life sciences analyst and a managing director in the Oppenheimer Healthcare Research Group. Frank specializes in multiple areas that touch the pharmaceutical industry, including applications of AI and machine learning. Frank, welcome. I'd like to start off by having you introduce yourself and telling the listeners a little bit about your background. Great. Thanks for having me today. Um, so my name is Francois or Frank, whichever uh, you prefer, Brisebois, and, and I'm, I am one of the senior healthcare analysts here at Oppenheimer. Because of the growing interest in AI's role in, in healthcare, um, I currently cover the space. Um, although at first, I think some tech investors didn't necessarily want to get involved with biotech or drug development and trials. And some more classic biotech investors didn't necessarily feel comfortable diving into the software and AI plays. You know, to me, however, the, the marriage of both is inevitable. And as I look at, um, to the future, I think there'll be more and more of it. I think it's a really exciting time to dig into the field. Okay, let's start our discussion off with a very broad and general question. There's been a tremendous amount of hype for the AI and machine learning across many industries. And the term is used very loosely. Tell us what AI is and what it isn't. 
Yeah, so I'll try to be concise here. Um, while you would think that this would be a very straightforward question, um, because of the pace at which the field is growing, I think there's a lot of different opinions out there. I think machine learning is probably more of a more technical and precise definition and is a subset of artificial intelligence or AI. Um, it's the application of machines like computers, for instance, the applications of machines to data uh, in order to basically help drive insights and in some ways help people make um, decisions. So I think AI and ML is especially interesting when you narrow down a little more to specific fields of interest. So simply using computers to collect data is probably not in your definition then, it sounds like. No, it's the next step. Understood. So thinking machines, I guess we could say. Healthcare is really a very incredibly diverse and broad field. From basic science to understanding the underlying mechanisms of disease, to discovery and development of new therapeutics and diagnostics, and ultimately to the delivery, hopefully, of low-cost, high-quality care to patients and populations. If you could just touch on some of the potential benefits that we could see across the entire healthcare spectrum as these AI and machine learning techniques filter in? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I would say in healthcare at a high level, um, I would split it up in three major sectors. So there'd be one, drug development, two, clinical development, and three, the clinical applications and, and patient care that you've touched on briefly before. So I guess when trying to figure out how much the humans are involved versus the machines, I think an interesting way to break it down um, that I've heard from experts in the field is, is the following. And what I'll do here is maybe give an example each time. So if we think, for instance, of digital pathology, um, right? So instead of slides of tissue preparation, they're carried from glass slides by a courier um, and then analyzed in the lab under a microscope before you finally give the patient the diagnosis. You basically have, you know, with digital pathology, you have tissue preparations on digital slides. Those are computerized. And then there's an automated patient diagnostic done by, by a machine. So I guess the, the three different categories that I would break it into is, you know, the first bucket, I guess, would be the machine that replaces the human. So here, the example would simply be automated machine vision. So instead of a human under the microscope, um, the process is done by a machine. I'd say the second bucket would be machines um, that are helping the human, not just replacing him, but helping the human do some things faster um, and better and increase their efficiency. So here the example would be that the slides are you know, very, very large um, with high resolution. So you'd have to zoom in a lot to identify, for instance, high-risk areas. So basically, um, if you can make it better and faster. Another quick example here is the move from 2D to 3D mammographies in breast cancer. So I think examples can help people understand a little bit more what I mean here. Um, in the 2D mammography world, you would only have about four images per study to look at, while in the 3D cuts of the breast, uh, each uh, study case is about 280 images. So this makes it extremely difficult for the radiologist to be efficient. And so knowing where to focus based on an algorithm could be extremely helpful. So again, just to remind you, that would be bucket two, where the machine helps the human uh, be better at, at their job. And then I think bucket three is maybe the holy grail, maybe the most complicated one, but one that I think will be more and more uh, prevalent is the machines doing something that humans 
just can't, cannot do. So here an example in digital pathology would be seeing maybe patterns um, that the human eye just can't detect. Or if we stay on that breast uh, cancer example, an example here would be being able to see the risk that someone may have to develop a breast cancer based on an algorithm, even if there's no way the eye or even added focus to the eye would be able to see it right now. That's excellent. I like the way that you explain that into the three categories or buckets. So I, I want to follow up on one of those points. And it relates to machines essentially doing something that a human would do. So the question is, how ready do you think the population is to handle that? Um, I guess this is more of a psychology question than a healthcare question. But from your experience in talking with participants in the field, is that something we're really ready for at this point? Yeah, I think that's a good point of, of maybe replacing the um, uh, physicians per se is I think, you know, uh, this is where I think some financial engineering will have to come in and solve the problem. Maybe you can incentivize based on the quality of the care and maybe the number of patients you can see. If, if there's too much data to look at, you can't have your radiologists um, spending their entire day looking at, you know, a lower, you know, a lower number of patients. So, you know, that's where it's definitely something that's intriguing at the same time. If it's going to help with the quality of care, I think it's inevitable. I think pharmas are going to have to look into it, and I think they'll fall behind competitively if they don't. So as we think about the drug discovery area, one of the things mentioned a little earlier is that healthcare is costing the American population, the world population, quite a bit of money. It's actually quite expensive to develop a drug. We've heard figures that go anywhere from half a billion to four billion, depending on who you want to listen to in the area. And it takes up to 12 years to 15 years to get that drug from the bench to the bedside. What are your thoughts? Will AI help impact uh, both the time and the cost? And what's the role of AI and machine learning in the early stages? Yeah, and I think, I think this is something that will be a big uh, topic uh, going forward, maybe the early stages of drug development. You know, for instance, data analytics and, and prediction modeling and, and simulation that I think make a lot of sense here, they've been around for about 20 years. What's interesting now is that the, the, the machines are getting a lot better. And so basically you're getting less and less human interaction, a lot more just machine. And so when I mentioned modeling and simulation, um, you know, people, it makes a ton of sense. People think of it in other industries. I think healthcare is a little behind the ball here where, you know, for example, you wouldn't send a pilot to learn to fly before putting him in a simulator. Um, now, will drug development ever go to complete simulation of clinical trials with no humans actually taking the drug before it's approved? I, I don't think so. I think that, I don't know if that's even wishful thinking. I just don't think that's that realistic. However, it can be extremely useful to simulate basically plausible mechanisms of actions of drugs, the right PKPD, which would be how the drug interacts in the body, or the best method of administration of a drug before spending, like you mentioned, billions of dollars in R&D um, with a really low probability of success. So I think, you know, validating these AI and machine learning approaches is key and most are probably using this already. I think here, a, a point that's very important when I talk about validation in the modeling and simulation field, 
for instance, about 10 years ago, the FDA and most regulatory bodies around the world um, have accepted it as, you know, in, uh, in clinical studies as a validated way to look at, at drug trials. And, and not only that, but they use it themselves. So I think that was a huge change in uh, drug development. That's progress. To be sure, AI and especially quantum computing can be instrumental in developing new molecules that lead to therapies that lead to solving long-standing problems and doing it by saving time and investment. So give us your thoughts on the potential enhancement and productivity at the front end, at the very front end of the process, figuring out what to make and how that could have an impact on the industry going forward. No, I think I think that's a great point. I think that's where at the early stages, you know, if you get one or two drugs out of 100 drugs in your pipeline that could succeed, I think that's fantastic for most pharma. At the same time, that's a lot of money spent. So I would say without necessarily saying that it could definitely, you know, make sure to pick the winners in the pipeline, I think it could exclude some, without calling them losers, some drugs that have an extremely low probability of success based on all the data that we've had in the past. And, you know, what's interesting here is as science evolves, the machines only get better because the input of data only increases. So um, it can go from small molecules to large molecules to gene therapies to cell therapies and, um, and beyond. So That brings to mind an interesting point. Has this created a new type of scientist who needs to be part computer scientist and also part biologist, chemist, and or physicist? You know, I think that's a good point because uh, more and more what's encouraging for these companies uh, is the fact that colleges and graduate programs are training these scientists. These aren't, you know, if they offer the software for say and the services, which would be kind of a consulting services, these aren't any run-of-the-mill kind of consultants where, you know, a lot of them have a mix of physics uh, expertise, chemistry expertise, a lot of computational biology, data science. And, you know, what's been fun is because this is more and more used in the industry, uh, there's a lot more programs that offer it um, in graduate programs. Okay, I have a series of questions. Can you discuss the potential impact in clinical trials? And along with that answer, what is the potential to do in silico trials? Any examples that you know of that are working now? And just a little bit about where the FDA is. Well, I think I think that'll be very interesting. I think a good example there is the inclusion-exclusion criteria. Ultimately, if you can figure out what genetic uh, makeup is appropriate for a certain drug for a certain trial to take out, for instance, the placebo effect or whatnot. So it's not only on the drug development side, but all the way to the application side to make sure that you do have the right patients in the right trials. And what's a little tricky there is, you know, now there's more and more data. I think the biggest change in the past 20 years has been data. I think that, you know, there's now that we can finally get it faster and cheaper, um, the more data that we have, the better we can figure out who should be, you know, for example, involved in a clinical trial. At the same time, I guess the the, the tricky part of this is if your your algorithm is based on data that has been flawed because of biases in clinical trials, for instance, 
um, that could turn, you know, that, that can complicate things a little bit. And I think I've mentioned this to people in the past, an analogy that I really like in the field is science is extremely imperfect and we're learning about it all the time, but it's a little bit like asking someone to, um, to make a shoe and knowing that the person's never seen a foot before. So as much as we can figure out where the heel is and the toes, there's a lot still to learn. Okay, so let's look toward the future for just a moment. Which healthcare areas will be most impacted by the AI and machine learning technologies as they get integrated? Yeah, and I think that's that's a great question. I think to to help with that question, maybe touch on the past a little bit as well. So, you know, in the past 10 to 20 years, I'd say the biggest difference, like I mentioned, was the data. Um, If you look at computing, it's gone faster, it's gotten cheaper. For instance, a perfect example of this is the human genome was sequenced in the very early 2000s. And it took a whole decade before it was fast and cheap enough before, you know, we can use it for an algorithm. So, you know, because you don't need just one, you need many integrated measurements of gene expressions, proteomics, clinical outcomes. So basically, it took a while before data started being complete enough for AI power to be used. Data just used to just come from clinical trials. Now you have electronic medical records, EMRs are out there. So this is really key. Um, And there's still a lot to be done as the algorithms get better. Now, in terms of the future, I think that drug development, especially early, like you mentioned, should embrace this. I think doing things faster, cheaper, or just better, like we mentioned, you know, because humans simply can't. So like I touched on, I think it's important to help prioritize based on early data. I think COVID, if anything, has taught us the importance of speed and efficiency in terms of the clinical aspect. Um, it can increase scientific proof because a lot of science is still extremely misunderstood. At the same time, you know, again, I think healthcare is conservative. Uh, but if you think about consumer tech, um, if you go online and it seems like ads know what you need, I think some form of personalization will come to healthcare. Privacy is important, but uh, at what cost, I guess, is is the question. Clearly, the balance of privacy and personalized medicine will be an ongoing debate. Like many, I have a fitness tracker, which I look at every single day. It uh, shows me my activity level, my sleep score, and many other indicators. And during the, the pandemic, there actually were indicators that predicted whether or not people actually had COVID uh, during the crisis. But then the question comes down to how is that information shared? There are probably a number of good outcomes for society, but when it comes down to privacy, that absolutely is going to continue to be an ongoing um, issue and debate. So getting back to the COVID pandemic for just a bit, at the very beginning of it, we heard lots about using existing drugs to fight the virus then the potential for AI to be a part of the ultimate solution. And as we sit here today, that really didn't play out in the way that many might have thought. So can you just give us your um, thoughts on the area of sort of uh, privacy and as well as where AI plays in the future and, and kind of reconcile that being that it didn't have as much of an outcome in the fight against the current pandemic? That's a difficult question because, as you mentioned, it seems like not a lot has come of it. But I think that the speed of the vaccine development has been very impressive. And you would think that substantial money uh, put to work here might have an impact. 
Um, I think if anything, the pandemic has shown us how vulnerable we are and how important it is to have cost-efficient, rapid, high probability of success drug development. So these are all the key attributes of AI and big data, uh, big data drug development. And, and similar to its impact in digital health, I think it will just have accelerated the role of software and AI in the healthcare ecosystem. Another example of modeling uh, to make it concrete is predicting liver toxicity of a drug that may, you know, in the long run, in the long term. And so a lot of clinical trials don't go that long before approval. So it would be helpful um, to know if one should develop a drug that's at, that has an extremely high risk of liver tox 10 to 20 years um, after starting therapy. So, you know, since we are discussing examples, uh, to make it even more clear to people, I guess, I've even heard of the potentially removing animal model from drug development. Since in certain diseases or therapies, it doesn't translate well at all. So from mice to, to humans. So by using data from previous clinical trials, um, this is all extremely interesting to me. That makes a whole lot of sense. And obviously that takes out further cost, especially where companies have to do it simply to check a box versus actually providing useful information that improves the whole process. That's a good thing. And quite frankly, spares a lot of animals as well in the process. In all of healthcare, we really need to start and we need to end with the patient. So I was wondering if you could touch on the potential impact to patient care, including, for example, better targeting of therapies and the potential for actual digital therapeutics, therapeutics that are on one's mobile devices as well. Because we've seen, even in the past just two years, a few of these actually get approved by the FDA. Right. And I quickly touched on the digital health space uh, in my last comment. I think I think this was coming. I think it's only gotten accelerated by the pandemic. I think in, you know, easy examples of speaking to your physician on your computer instead of going in for certain procedures, it's fine. And so the digital health space has, has definitely gained some serious interest of late. In terms of digital therapeutics here, uh, for the patient, these there are digital implementations of of basically conventional treatment, which I guess would fall into the previous bucket number one that I had mentioned. So there's also the delivery of something digitally that couldn't be done otherwise. For example, there's now, you might have been alluding to this, uh, a video game for ADHD that's been approved. So I also think the predictions that we had talked about uh, can also be digital health plays. So what's important to me is the differentiation between the offerings. Um, has it been validated? Is it the best amongst its peers? So it's competitive profile. People also talk about behavioral change, um, which unfortunately is a little less specific. Uh, this might be more related to compliance of drugs or simply using wearables and, and having people be more conscientious of, of their health and ultimately saving money to the healthcare system. So uh, some of the innovation can be groundbreaking, like you know getting the right treatment to the right patient. But the difficult part here is is others can can be quite successful without necessarily having real IP. And and you know I, I mention this to people sometimes. Uh, for example, if we get outside of healthcare, something like Facebook doesn't really have IP, but it's first mover. It has it, the network power is key uh, for them. So it, uh, to me, investors should really focus on causality 
and the importance of that causality, which is very similar to statistical significance in drug development. So I guess bridging the subjectivity to the objectivity can make this a lot more comfortable for biotech investors, for example, um, that are used to p-values for, for statistical significance. Yeah. Well said. Thank you, Frank, for joining us today. And let's end today's podcast with your final thoughts. I, know, I appreciate taking the time. And, and I think there's been you know, a lot more interest in the space for the right reasons. And I think there's a lot more to come here. So um, I look forward to the future of, of AI's involvement. Thank you for listening. Don't miss the next episode of Let's Talk Future as we explore a variety of topics important to every kind of investor by bringing our firm's financial thought leaders directly to you. Hit the subscribe button today.